Be subject. If you like to underline in your Bible, underline that. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject, underline that, to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives... Be subject, underline that, to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now flip over to chapter 5. Verse 1, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject, underline that, to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We regularly remind ourselves it is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path, as the psalmist taught us. We ask, Father, that you would help us to give our attention to it now, that we would be prepared to receive the word of Christ. We pray, Father, that you would write its eternal truths on our hearts. 
We pray, Father, for those who are here today who are not yet believers, that in the reading of your word, in the hearing of your word preached, that you would do the good work of redeeming grace and cause them to be born again. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In chapter 1, verse, verses 3 through 22, Peter tells us about our relationship with God. A relationship that we notice, if we're reading carefully, that begins with God's action and actually ends in God's glory. Then in chapter 1, verse 23, all the way through chapter 2, verse 10, Peter tells us about our relationship with one another as a result of the relationship that God has begun in our lives. And as we've seen for the last several weeks in our study of Peter, as God's children, we are a family, a temple, a people. Now in chapter 2, verse 11, moving through chapter 4, verse 11, Peter tells us about our relationship with the unbelieving world. And he begins by telling us that the good works of believers are intended for mission. Four points will frame our time together this morning. Notice first, our relationship with the world. Look again in chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... Peter loves his fellow Christians. He loves these believers. You can hear it in his tone. Beloved. He loves them, and he desperately wants them to know that God loves them. Beloved. As he begins to exhort them, verse 11, I urge you on the nature of their relationship with the world. He wants them to know that because only the love of God will actually motivate them to live as a family, as a temple, as a people, and only the love of God will motivate them to good works intended for mission. So rather than scold them to change, he encourages them with the love of God. We hear it all throughout the letter. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. You, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed, the outcome of your faith is the salvation of your souls. You were ransomed. You yourselves, like living stones, are actually being built up into a spiritual house. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Brothers and sisters, it is so much easier to scold than it is to encourage to tear down than to build up, to say something derogatory than to say something uplifting. Parents, are you motivating your kids with the love of God or the fear of man? Disciples, are you scolding or encouraging? Fellow members, are you tearing one another down or building one another up? Students, do your friends hear you talk about the wonderful love of God or your frustrations with the present moment and all the people around you. Let us be a church, a people, a temple, a family that motivate one another to change with the love of God. The love of God that Peter has been writing about, the love of God displayed on the cross, the love of God manifest in the life of Jesus Christ, the love of God that changes people literally in their seats and causes them to be born again to a new and living way. Peter models a better way for us 
as he urges these, verse 11, sojourners and exiles. This is actually the third time in his letter that Peter has mentioned that Christians are sojourners and strangers on the earth. The first time that he mentioned it was actually in the very first verse of the letter, verse 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, to those who are chosen but cast out. Then he mentioned it again in chapter 1, verse 17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And now he mentions it again for the third time. Beloved, those whom I love and those loved by God, I urge you as sojourners and exiles so that they do not forget that even though they are, verse 9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, they are simultaneously sojourners and strangers on earth. They are just passing through. And the very reason that they are sojourners and strangers is that they are loved by God. God took people who were at home in the world and turned them into aliens and exiles. He made people who were at home in their culture homeless in their own culture. He caused people who were comfortable in their society to be uncomfortable in their society because of their belief in Jesus Christ, which is the very reason that the world is opposing them. They're not doing the things that they expect them to do. They're not speaking the way that they expect them to speak. Their love and desires and affections and the things that they give their time and attention to are not the things the society expects them to, so they malign them and revile them and reject them and they accuse them and they slander them. God took these people who were comfortable and he made them uncomfortable. Fellow believers, I wonder, I wonder if that is how you are living your life. Are you living your life as you are just passing through? Are you living for another world in this world? Peter tells us, and he tells these Christians, that we're just passing through, which actually sets them free rather than makes them indifferent. They are now free to love, and they are free to live, and they are free to give, and they are free to serve, because their attachment is not to this world, but to another world. They are sojourners and strangers and exiles in this life because they are God's people. And if they are God's, Peter tells us that they actually have to reconsider everything about the way that they are living their life. No longer can they just work the way that everybody else works or parent the way that everybody else parents or live with one another the way that everybody else lives with one another. They're not allowed to be citizens in the society like everybody else. They're not to have normal relationships because they now have a different relationship that supersedes everything about them. They are to now consider how they are to live for the good of their own soul and the honor of God in absolutely everything that they do in this life because they have no permanent home in this world. I wonder if other people would look at your life and say, that is how you're living our relationship with the world, notice second, our living in the world. Look in verse 11 again. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war 
against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Peter now urges believers to live in a certain way as sojourners and strangers in society, as he directs their attention to their behavior. He exhorts them to abstain from the passions of the flesh. But there is a real danger for all of us as we read these words this morning because it is entirely possible for us to read these words and think that the apostle is only referring to sexual sins or sins of the body like drunkenness and drugs. And as a result, especially if we're not struggling with any of those things this morning, we think that he is not talking to us and that this verse and this exhortation is for someone else. Friends, do not be the type of person who listens to a sermon for somebody else. In context, we see that sexual sin and drunkenness and drugs are not the very things that Paul has in mind at all. Look with me in verse 1 of chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Passions like meanness and dishonesty and insincerity and jealousy and disparagement. Social sins, community-disrupting sins, gospel-denying sins, sins that the people of God would need to know about so that the people of God could live together in an understanding and loving way. Because the people of God in the first century are just like the people of God in this room right now. Men and women from a variety of different backgrounds who have any number of proclivities and triggers that due to a variety of different circumstances, love one another and are upset by one another all of the time. So Peter exhorts them to consider how these sins disrupt their lives in Christ and disrupt their fellowship with one another and actually uh, prevent them of being able to minister to the unbelieving world by highlighting these passions that belong to the world. Passions that they themselves are not exempt from. And brothers and sisters, that is good news because your life is not any different than theirs. Any, even though they are believers in Christ, they are not exempt from these passions. But notice what Peter says. Because he's exhorting them, he's telling them, these passions are not beyond their control. So the apostle says, verse 11, abstain from them. Do not do them. Put them away. Rid your lives of them, throw them off, be different people. As God's chosen people, they can actually, by God's gracious enabling, resist the passions that, verse 11, wage war against their souls. As the depth of the struggle is revealed, and notice, notice how he says it here. He doesn't say it the way that we say it, even the way that I just said it. We say, I'm struggling with sin. He says, you're at war with sin. Often we speak of it as, you know, I'm struggling with these things. What do you mean? Well, most of the time when these people are around, they get really frustrated, and I think all of these murderous thoughts about them. That's not struggling. That's not struggling at all. And apply that to all of the areas in your life that you do that. I'm struggling with the way that I do this. I actually have given myself over to the way that I'm living my life right now. Peter doesn't speak of it as a struggle. Peter speaks of it as a war. The depth of it is revealed as he highlights for them, beloved, God's chosen people, you can, by God's gracious enabling, because you are loved by God, resist these passions and throw them off. You can put them to death. 
you can, in the sanctification of the Spirit, chapter 1, verse 2, put them off as you recognize them and repent of them and place your faith afresh in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the mighty friend of sinners. Brothers and sisters, that is good news for every believer in this room this morning. You can put the sin that you are struggling with in this life to death. You can throw the sin that is dogging you in this life off. You can move to new levels of maturity in Christ. You can actually live a life where those things are not characterizing your life. You can be free from your sin in Christ. Not just forgiven of your sin so that you inherit eternal life, but free from the bondage and shackle of sin in this life. And that is the good news of the gospel. It saves you and it changes you so that you can live free in this life. He will help you. Believer, why are you not turning afresh to him today? Whether it's murderous thoughts or internet pornography or struggling with your tongue and murder, uh, slanderous things about other people, why are you not appealing to the Savior to help you, to make you new, to help you throw it off? He longs for you to be driven deeper into faith and deeper into repentance and to help you to turn away from it. An unbeliever in the room, perhaps you have no idea what we're talking about. We're talking about that moment when a believer recognizes that they are sinful by birth and sinful by choice and that as a result of that sin, they are separated from God and that if they turn away from that sin and walk toward Jesus Christ, he will forgive them of their sins and he will make them new. That can be true of the believer and that can be true of you today if you just trust in Christ and come to Christ. Peter is calling them and us to action. Peter's not saying the Christian life is passive. He tells them that there is a war and there is action that must be taken in the war as he tells them that whether they know it or not, they're in the midst of a battle and their defiance of fleshly passions is a war that if ignored, poses a very real threat for the spiritual well-being of their own lives, for their own souls because the passions of the flesh are quite strong like the enemy attempting to conquer believers. So resisting is not going to be easy. They can't just let go and let God. They must put up a fight. Friends, are you fighting? Are you putting to death what is earthly in you? Are you resisting? Are you abstaining from the passions of the flesh? Would those who are close to you and know you best agree with your assessment of yourself? And if there is nobody who knows you well enough to know if your assessment of yourself is accurate, and friends, you are in a very dangerous place. And that is actually the reason that God gives us the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You were never meant to live this life alone. Perhaps you're a member of this church today and you're actually living life alone. You have struggles in this room that you have not shared with other members of this church, and as a result of that, you continue to struggle in that battle with sin. God has given you other covenant members of this church to help you. Friends, come to them, find them, confess your sin to them, and ask them to help you. And if you're not a member of the church, but you're a believer, whether it's this church or another church, Jesus Christ has commanded that we be members of the church, that we submit ourselves to the leadership of a church, that we invest ourselves in the life of a church, and that we look to other members in the context of a church to help us live the Christian life. We invite you to join our church to be fellow members with us here. We long to help you in this life. And if you're an unbeliever, the only way that you can be a member of the church is by first trusting in Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then what Jesus does 
is he places you among his people so that you do not have to live this life alone. Peter is telling these sojourners and exiles on the earth that they must labor in the war to put off these passions so that they can, verse 12, keep their conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now notice how the good conduct of verse 12 springs from the right desires of verse 11. It is actually the very same pattern that we saw in chapter 1, verse 14. Just glance over there with me now. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but be holy in all of your conduct. One of Peter's favorite words for expressing the new life of believers is conduct. You see it all throughout the letter. One of the most helpful things you could do this afternoon is go and read the the letter and just circle all the references to conduct. In chapter 1, verse 15, it refers to the holiness of life required of Christians. In chapter 1, verse 18, it refers to the evil way of life from which they have been delivered by Christ's death. It depicts the godly behavior of wives in chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, who are living with unbelieving husbands. And it depicts the godly life of those who are suffering as believers in chapter 3, verse 16. It describes the new way of life demanded of Christians in Peter's letter, a life that they are to live before, verse 12, the Gentiles, unbelievers, people who are not members of the church, pagans, ways that they are to live honorably or attractively or beautifully. Peter calls them and us to resist, to fight sinful practices and to have an honorable virtuous, good life in various spheres of life. And as we'll see in a moment, that applies to all of the areas of life that we might call normal, what it means to live as a citizen, what it means to live as servants, what it means to live in relationship with the spouse, what it means to live as members of the church. Peter did not summon believers to a verbal campaign of self-defense. Peter did not summon them to write in their own defense or to defend their own morality. Peter summoned them to virtue and to goodness and to holiness and to a distinct way of living in the world because one of the most evangelistic things we can do as individuals and as a church is to live a holy life. But did you notice how he called them to do it? By, verse 11, fighting first at the level of passions and then, verse 12, at the level of conduct. You see, we go about it all wrong often. We try to clean up our behavior in hopes that our passions will catch up with the change. But they never do. And as a result of that, all of the inordinate longings of our hearts, left unchecked, continue to dog us. And they shape the way that we think. And then eventually, as most people in this room would be able to testify, there came this moment, moment, whether you're single or married, and you have kids or don't, whether you're young or old, that something that you did not know was still in you comes bubbling out of you, and it explodes in a conversation, and you begin to think while you're doing it. I didn't know that that was still in there. I thought that I had defeated that, that I was no longer this type of person. Where did that rage come from? And why do I have so much hate in my heart? Why am I so angry with that other person? And why can't I stand to be spoken to like that? to the point where you actually find yourself, it's almost as if you're outside of yourself while it's happening, thinking, who is this that is acting in this moment? Can this really be me? And the answer is, yes, that is you and who you truly are in those moments. 
So we try to change our conduct in hopes that the passions will catch up with that. But Peter says we're going about it all wrong. It will continue to dog us, and it will shape the way that we think, and it will shape the way that we live. And what it will do is it will become more sinister, friends, is that it will just transfer to another area of our lives. Here's the thing is that many of us have learned how to control certain desires that we have learned are unacceptable, that will actually get us into trouble or put us in conflict with other people. So we manage it, and all we do is transfer all of it to somewhere else in our lives that is more hidden, kept out of sight, and never dealt with. So how do we, according to Peter, reform our passion so that we exhibit genuinely reformed behavior? By focusing our minds on the gospel. Think about the way that he's written the letter. Peter did not begin by telling them, hey, here's how you become very evangelistic. Peter did not begin by saying, hey, here's how you live in the context of the church. Peter began by saying, remember the gospel. According to the great mercy of God, you have been born again. And then he goes on and on about the beauty of this gospel and what God has done for us. And then he tells us that as a result of that gospel, you are now to have meaningful fellowship with other believers in the context of the church. And then he actually tells them, that in the context of that church, it is to now overflow into evangelism for the unbelieving world so that they might see the way that you live together and hear the gospel that you proclaim together and that they themselves might be saved. Peter tells us that the way to genuinely reformed behavior is truly reformed passions that express themselves in honorable, beautiful conduct for the unbelieving world to see. But for what purpose? Why do they need to see it? Our relationship with the world, our living in the world. Notice third, our goal for the world. Look at verse 12. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter prepares them and us for opposition in this life by highlighting when, not if, but when unbelievers speak of them as evildoers. Friends, part of the reason that we are so often caught off guard by opposition in the culture or in the country or in the community or around the world is that we are not prepared for opposition and we fail to remind ourselves that part of the Christian life is war and part of the Christian life is opposition. But Peter helps us see that the normal Christian life faces opposition from the unbelieving world, that our status as God's children actually makes us targets for unbelievers, that it makes us strangers and exiles in this life. So we should not be surprised when non-Christians slander us or sin against us or disregard us or pass over us or don't promote us. It is, the apostle tells us, to be expected. But not while we're doing evil or even retaliating for the wrong done against us. But while, verse 12, we do good deeds. Good deeds the apostle tells us, intended for mission. In God's providence, it will be these good deeds that will actually win our opponents to Christ, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter tells us that outsiders are won to God by distinctive Christian living in the world and in so doing, connects Christian living with verbal proclamation. And this is where Peter is different than the very unhelpful and useless cliche saying that says, share the gospel and sometimes, if necessary, use words. 
that is not helpful at all because that's not what the Bible says at all. Peter says in verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. When you proclaim something, you use words. And then in verse 12, why? While you're proclaiming that, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Actually, what Peter tells us is that in the good living, there is also proclamation. And with the proclamation is good living. And without the other, both are undermined. You can proclaim all of the right things, friends, and live a life that is a contradiction to the gospel. And as a result of that, the very people that you are proclaiming the gospel to will not trust in Christ. I wonder, believers in the room, perhaps some of the people that you have prayed for for some time, the very reasons that they have not yet trusted Christ is because you have proclaimed all of the right things, but you have lived a contradictory life in front of them. Or we can live a great life, be incredibly moral, and live very distinctly in front of all of the people around us and actually never tell them the very things that they must hear to be born again by the Spirit of God. I wonder, believers in the room, is it perhaps that you have lived so peaceably with other people that you have never shared the wonderful and beautiful and offensive message of the gospel with them, the very gospel that they must hear? Peter pulls the two things together for these people. And he says that they go together that they may see after they have heard your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And in this moment, Peter alludes to the teaching of our Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus did that in the midst of a sermon. While proclaiming, he's calling them to live distinctly. Like Matthew, Peter draws a connection between seeing good deeds and the corresponding praise that is given to God as a result. But by who? Who's giving God the praise? Verse 12, unbelievers on the day of visitation. Peter exhorted these Christians to live noble, virtuous, holy, godly lives because in so doing, They would see the good works of Christians, and while observing their good works, they would repent and believe and give glory to God on the last day. Unbelievers may mock them and revile them and misrepresent them in this life, but as they notice the goodness in their lives, some, Peter assures us, will repent and be saved, and as a result of their salvation, give glory to God. Friends, if the conduct is not excellent, if it is not beautiful, then it is not going to point people to the glory of God. Honorable, attractive, honest, beautiful conduct in the presence of unbelievers actually provokes them to oppose us and at the same time simultaneously causes them to recognize something different in us that points them to Christ. But in what settings? In what settings did Peter envision all of this fleshing out as he penned these words? Our relationship with the world, our living in the world, and our, our goal for the world. Notice fourth, our posture before the world. Now, this is where I'm not going to reread everything that we read at the beginning, but I am going to help summarize and pull some of these sections together for us because we need to fly over it so that we can dig into it in the next few weeks. Let's start again in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, 
which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak evil against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter tells us the good works of believers are intended for mission, as he calls these believers to good works and the respective spheres of their lives before giving us four concrete examples in his letter in which he envisions this teaching being played out. And you see it throughout the rest of the letter with the references to be subject. They are to be subject as citizens and submit themselves to the government. They are to be subject as servants and be submissive to masters. Wives are to be subject to their husbands while being submissive to them. And those who are younger are to be subject to elders and submit themselves to them. The fundamental way that Peter saw us as abstaining from the passions of the flesh and keeping our conduct among the Gentiles pure was by living in submission to appropriate authorities, even if, and sometimes especially when, those authorities were oppressive or abusive or manipulative, which in no way condones abuse or oppression or manipulation. But Peter tells us that the distinguishing mark of a Christian is that they would be submissive, which naturally presses against everything we believe to be American. We are people who revolt. We began in revolt. We like to revolt. We believe in revolt. And Peter says, submit. The distinguishing mark of the Christian life is subjection. In the midst of contexts that are difficult, he did not tell these Christians, this is going to be really easy. This is going to wage war against your souls. He did not say that there would be no challenge. They will oppose you and slander you and misrepresent you. And then Peter begins to envision for them, this is what it looks like in some ways that he's noticing as he exhorts these people. The fundamental way was to conduct themselves among these unbelievers in a pure way by living in submission to every human institution, to masters, for wives, to unbelieving spouses, to elders and pastors. Because only a Christian submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ, living as a sojourner and stranger in this life, is going to actually submit themselves to appropriate authority, three of which, I'm going to say, are abusive, oppressive, or manipulative in Peter's letter. Governing authorities, earthly masters, and unbelieving husbands. This is why I think Peter actually separates the discussion on elders from this chapter and puts it in chapter 5, in what we call chapter 5, because he's distinguishing it In that context, it does not seem to be, it actually seems to be a blessing there. But yet at the same time, he's calling them to subject themselves to appropriate authority. In these other contexts, Peter is speaking to people who are being taken advantage of. And how are they to do this? How are these people to submit themselves to every human institution when they're being taken advantage of? And how are servants to submit themselves to masters when they're being taken advantage of? And how are wives to submit themselves to husbands who are unbelievers when they are being taken advantage of? Before we give the answer, I just want to say something very clear. That absolutely every one of those circumstances would be difficult, and perhaps for some of you in this room it represents you. 
that you find yourself in a situation where you feel like, I can't live like this. We want to help you. We are so glad that you are here. We would love to open the Bible with you. And if there's something practical that we can do to alleviate your suffering as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we would love to do that. And yet simultaneously, we say that the scripture gives no caveat for this. That this is how we are to live the Christian life. And the Christian life is often difficult, and sometimes challenging, and impossibly hard. And yet it is not without hope. And Peter gives us an answer. How are we to do this? Central to the entirety of this section, moving on now as he tells them how to live this life out, is the example of the faithful servant and the faithful citizen who subjected himself to suffering. In chapter 2, verse 21. He's not only an example, but his sacrifice was their, was their substitute. Notice what he says. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Chapter 2, verse 21, if you don't know where I'm reading. Leaving you an example. Do you want to know how you do this? Look to the Lordship, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. He sets you an example. This is how you live in an unjust world. This is how you live among people who do not treat you fairly. This is how you live among people who take advantage of you and slander you and mock you and persecute you and ultimately, in his case, put him to death so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no matter how righteous we might think ourselves to be. Jesus committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Just think of the incredible restraint of the, Lordship, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ in those moments. He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. What type of sin might he have in view here? Sin of self-justification. Sin of bucking against authority. Sin of malice, sin of deceit, sin of frustration and anger and hate, and all of the moments where it would seem right and just. If anybody ever had a good cause to be uh, uh, unjustly angry, it was the Lord Jesus. By his wounds, you have been healed. Verse 25, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The gospel motivates our deeds and those deeds become the catalyst for mission in our lives so that we might submit ourselves in difficult moments and be able to call other people to faith and repentance in Christ. And if you are not a Christian here today, that is exactly what we've been doing throughout the entirety of this service and this sermon, calling you to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust in Christ, to hope in Christ, in the most impossible of circumstances, by looking to the cross and being reminded that our Lord Jesus set us an example and he died in our place. If you'd like to know more about what it means to trust in Christ, we would love to talk to you. Come find me or one of the other members of this church after the service. We'd love to open the Bible with you. Today, you can be born again by believing in Jesus. A few applications for us as we close today. First, give yourself to the church. Give yourself to the church. And I'm going to substantiate that by the way that he exhorts us in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Sometimes it might, might seem that what we do here on a Sunday morning is a small thing as we drive past or walk past 
hundreds of households with people in them who seem to have no care, no concern for what is taking place here on a Sunday morning. It may feel that what we're doing is of little significance, but God's kingdom, the scripture assures us, is unsmashable. And the scripture tells us that we are an outpost of the kingdom of Christ this side of eternity. Do not be discouraged. Instead, commit yourself to the church. Serve the church family. Because when the Lord builds his church, either in number or in maturity, through our labors, gifts, giving, we are being used to build not only the kingdom of Christ, but to actually proclaim the gospel to other people around us so that they might know the forever love of God in Jesus Christ. So let us give ourselves to the work of the church. If you're a member of our church today, and for some reason you're not serving regularly, or you've not been actively involved, and you know it, and you know who you are, let today be the turning point where you say, you know what, no matter how difficult it is or how hard it is, I'm going to give, and I'm going to serve, I'm going to be here on time, and I'm going to meet with other people so that I might give myself to this cause and help build up this body because one of the most evangelistic things we can do as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is gather together and live holy lives. And one of the most godly things that we can do is to submit ourselves in appropriate context and ways to good authority and leadership. And that's not only true for you, and I'm not saying that in a self-serving way because that is true for me. There are times among our elders, when I've been told no or voted down or they've said, you can't do this, we're going to do that. And that is a good example for me to be reminded that nobody in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ gets to do what they want to do all of the time, that we are to submit to those whom God has placed over us and among us. So commit yourselves to the church and help encourage good uses of authority in the life of the local church so that we might be able to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Second, I want to call in these moments where we see a misuse of authority in the government or among masters and those who are over us or especially with unbelieving spouses for us to realize that what we must do in those moments is to submit our desires and our preferences and not rise up and challenge but subject ourselves to appropriate authorities even if they're not using their authority in an appropriate way. And again, that is not a condoning of abuse in any context. Peter does not give a caveat here and say, but if you really like them. Peter tells us to be subject in these moments because only a believer who's trusting in Jesus Christ to vindicate them, not only in this life, but in the next, will live this way. Third, we need to consider the relationship afresh today, between the proclamation of the gospel and the way that we're living our lives practically and how the two go together. Believers in the room especially, this is another call toward holiness. Is there a sin in your life that undermines the gospel that you proclaim? Friends, is there cowardice in your life, though you're living godly and upright in the present age before other people? Peter links the two and calls us to proclaim and to live holy and godly lives for the good of other people. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. Let us believe it afresh. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these, my friends. And I pray that you would help all of us today. Help all of us today to hear and to receive these words. We thank you for the apostle. And we thank you for the challenges of Scripture. We thank you, Father, for how 
They drive us into conformity with Christ and toward godliness and holiness in the present age, sometimes in areas and in ways that we would never choose for ourselves. Father, I pray for every believer in the room today that you would help them, that you would help them to live such a life before other people while proclaiming the gospel of Christ, that they might see and hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved. Father, I pray for those who are here who have been taken advantage of by unjust uses of authority. I pray, Father, that you would comfort them and that they would find the church and this church, perhaps in particular, to be a place where authority is rightly used and wielded, not only by the elders, but by the membership. Father, we pray that we would be a godly people. And Father, we pray for those who are here today who are not yet Christians, who perhaps hear an astonishing message. Submit, be subject, subjugate yourselves, and realize that before all that is submitting ourselves to the Lordship of Christ, the friend of sinners, so that we might be born again by the Spirit of Christ. Would you now, in these moments, as we sing of our hope of heaven, as we remind ourselves that we are pilgrims in this life, that we are strangers and exiles, open their hearts and cause them to be born again. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?